November is Diabetes Awareness Month and Chad Sapphire looked at the statistics of this disease. Lifestyle and stress are runaway fuel for diabetes and we hope to bring some understanding to our listeners of how to perhaps prevent the onset and how to deal with it once diagnosed. So the statistics are alarming. The International Diabetes Federation Diabetes Atlas for 2019 shows that 12.7% of adults in SA had the disease in 2019. The problem is that this is a 137% increase on the 2017 figure of only 5.4% of the population. Clearly, as a nation, we need to sit up and take note and learn more about this. So Chat Sapphire has invited Dr. Nitu Mudliar to join us in studio to talk to us about diabetes. Hello Nitu and welcome to Chat Sapphire. Hi T, thank you for having me here and giving me the opportunity to contribute to this chat. You're very welcome. I'd love to introduce Nitu to our listeners. Her special interests lie in women's health, non-surgical aesthetics, integrative and regenerative medicine and health coaching. She is currently practicing at Netke Umplanga Medical Center and offering a concierge traveling doctor service. Her postgraduate qualifications include board certified in aesthetics and certified in integrative medicine with the American Academy of Aesthetic Medicine. And she's currently pursuing a fellowship in stem cell therapies and regenerative medicine with the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Nitu, I love that your passion lies in creating a sustained state of optimum wellness, utilizing non-pharmacological and evidence-based nutrition strategies. Now, while it sounds like a mouthful, surely that's really what we all hope for, to be as well as we can be. Absolutely, Tasia. Just to add on to your statistics that you mentioned, um, a continuous increase in the prevalence of obesity, which is a body mass index of more than 30 kilograms per meter squared, and related metabolic diseases such as diabetes are burdening our health systems even more globally as we speak. 42% of the adult U.S. population will be obese by 2020, is what we've been told. And the statistics are very similar in developing countries like South Africa. So when we look at that, yes, although I am an allopathic doctor by profession, I like to incorporate non-pharmacological managements and uh, evidence-based nutrition where possible because of the minimal risk associated with that. Now, Nito, November being Diabetes Month, the focus of our chat today is going to be on creating awareness of the alternative management of diabetes. And I'm sure those living with diabetes will already sit up when they hear this. But let's start by asking, what is diabetes? Perfect. I think in order for us to create an awareness on the alternative management, we first have to know what the current conventional management would be and why we want to create an awareness on the alternative management. So to answer your question, what is diabetes? Diabetes or diabetes mellitus, commonly referred to as high blood sugar, um, is a condition in which the body is unable to adequately metabolize the food one eats into usable energy, basically into its 
bioavailable form of glucose. How does that happen? By using the body's insulin to break down what one eats to get the glucose into the cells for metabolism. Insulin is a hormone produced by the pancreas. And in diabetes, the body either cannot use the insulin that's being adequately produced or there's not enough insulin being produced. Okay, so that leads us then to the different types of diabetes that we have. We have type 2 diabetes, previously referred to as non-insulin or adult onset diabetes. And this results from the body being unable to utilize the insulin efficiently. Majority of people diagnosed with this disorder um, or diabetes have type 2 diabetes, and it is largely a result of poor lifestyle choices over a prolonged time frame, leading to the insulin resistance, excess body weight, physical inactivity, and then obviously the sedentary lifestyle that causes the problem. Um, the symptoms of which I will allude to just now are similar to type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, previously referred to as insulin-dependent or juvenile-onset diabetes, is characterized by an inefficient insulin production rather than utilization and is therefore treated using exogenous insulin. So previously, we saw most patients um, having type 2 diabetes being adults, and now we're actually seeing that in our younger child population as well. And that's alarming because it means that our children are not being taught to live properly and Absolutely. they're developing metabolic disorders early on in life. Sure. So the, the symptoms of diabetes are polyuria or excessive urination, polydipsia, excessive thirst, a constant feeling of hunger and no satiety, even though people are eating, and unexplained sudden rapid excessive weight loss of more than about 10% of the body weight, um, visual disturbances, and chronic fatigue or tiredness. And then we also have gestational diabetes, which is hyperglycemia in pregnancy. And this basically carries a uh, a risk of complications during pregnancy and as well as at delivery. Children of mothers with gestational diabetes carry a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later on in life. However, I must mention at this time that we are now aware of the benefit of epigenetics, and we'll touch on that a little bit later on. Um, so in my opinion, diabetes occurs as a result of poor lifestyle choices and as such can be prevented. Well, that's good news. So let's move on to your specific approach to the management of diabetes. Sure, having trained as an allopathic medical doctor with almost two decades of clinical experience, I identified certain deficiencies or maybe flaws in the way that we are taught to manage diabetes. I had a GP practice for 10 years in which a large percentage of my patients were diabetics and I did manage them conventionally. So my approach currently doesn't come without having been exposed to that previously. Um, although I don't have a large cohort of you know, white papers to produce for you in terms of statistics, um, anecdotally, 
a large percentage, if not most or all of my patients who have adopted the lifestyle, non-pharmacology, um, evidence-based nutritional approach are actually happy. They feel better, they look better, and they just, oh my God, doctor, with such simple techniques, we actually can see the difference. So that's the reason for changing my approach. The approach that I adopt is an integrative one that combines the use of neuroplasticity, neuroendocrinology, psychoneuroimmunology, and epigenetics using basic techniques of increasing awareness and consciousness on lifestyle choices, the food that we eat, meditative practice, earthing, and natural vitamin and mineral supplementation towards optimizing the gut biome as well. Those are a couple of large words for our listeners. Um, I wonder if you can perhaps just, just briefly touch on each one of those terms and just help us to understand what it was that you said. Well, essentially what I'm saying is that mm. we are using methods such as meditation, creating a subconscious shift with what we believe subconsciously, um, and then in the conscious way, choosing foods that are plant-based where possible, organic where possible, staying away from um, refined carbohydrates and sugars, and then incorporating into our day-to-day -day activity exercise, walking on the earth barefoot, so you're benefiting from that, um, and that basically gives you benefit at cellular level, um, and basically having quiet time. Epigenetics, again, is then where we determine how the gene behaves by the environment in which the gene is. So where previously we were told, if your mom or dad has diabetes, it's probably your sentence, you're going to get it anyway, so you know it's, it is what it is. That's not the case anymore, because we now know if you make healthy food choices, much different to what your mom and dad did, you can actually avoid that diagnosis. Having said all of this, if patients' blood sugars warrant conventional allopathic medicine, I do combine that if the need arises, but I do try my best to do it without that as much as possible, simply to avoid potential complications and adverse effects of drugs going forward. Yes, and it just makes sense if you can cope without you know, that sort of intervention, then you would want to do that. I mean, you're not stressing your medical aid or your cash flow. And it's just a normal lifestyle that you're pursuing. It's not a, it's not a strange or an alternative lifestyle. It's, it's what we should be seeking. So that sounds good to me. Nitu, how do you suggest people incorporate a prevention strategy into their very diverse and somewhat difficult lifestyles? So T, I think keeping it simple is the way to go. And in doing so, I mean healthy food choices plant-based and organic diet where possible, totally cutting out refined carbohydrates, that's your breads, pastas, and the like, and also refined sugars. So the sugars that people would get would be from the fruit and the vegetables that they ingest. Then daily meditative practices. When one talks about meditation, there is a large percentage of the population that thinks it has a religious kind of slur to it, which is not. It's basically being in the now, being in the moment. If one is 
fishing and only concentrating on their fishing or gardening and only concentrating on the gardening. That's a meditative practice. So even walking outside on the seashore and just enjoying the breeze, the water, the sunshine mm-hmm. is a meditative practice. So that's another way in which you can um, prevent the disease. A thing like I mentioned, barefoot outside, conscious breathing. Conscious breathing has very many benefits and one needs to get the ratio between inspiration and expiration right and do it for at least 10 minutes daily or twice daily if possible. Then there are nitric oxide dumping exercises. I'm not sure if you've heard that. Made popular by Dr. Zach Bush, who is an endocrinologist by profession. And again, when you say, how do I suggest people incorporate this preventative strategy into their very diverse and somewhat difficult lifestyles, people are now forced to work from home. Mm -hmm. They don't have a time frame for work versus home versus lifestyle balance. So your nitric oxide exercises are literally a three-minute routine, which can give you a very good benefit. So that's something I suggest people incorporate. And then obviously vitamin and mineral supplementation correctly because we are told take this vitamin, take that vitamin. Sometimes we don't even know what we're taking. One of the things I'd like to allude to or maybe two are omega supplementation, for example. The omegas are really good for neurological health and benefit. And you have an omega-9, an omega-3, and an omega-6. Previously, we were supplementing all three. Now we are saying you don't need to supplement omega-9. And then your omega-3 and 6 needs to be supplemented in a specific ratio. The WHO actually gives us that ratio, but I think it's actually unknown not only to the general population, but even to medical professionals, we just would supplement and not knowing what ratios we're aiming for. So in doing so, we need to choose specific products that have evidence-based statistics to show why they work and how they work and that we can demonstrate that. And again, with the supplementation, it's obviously your pro and prebiotics. Um, And lastly, I would say to avoid toxins like your tobaccos and alcohols where possible. Our chat today is with Dr. Nitu Mudliar, and we are focusing on diabetes awareness. Nitu, you've just mentioned a few specific actions and supplements, such as the nitric oxide dumping exercises as promoted by Dr. Zach Bush, and the importance of the correct omega supplement ratios and probiotics. For the sake of our listeners, I think we'll do a follow-up where we can delve into the how-to, and you can explain this in more detail. Of course, in the meantime, we encourage listeners to send their questions to us in our comment section or use the WhatsApp button on the Chat Sapphire Facebook page. What is the current conventional approach to the management of diabetes? So the current conventional approach to the management of diabetes is guided by international and national bodies and depends on basically what type of diabetes we're treating. So whether it's insulin dependent or non-insulin dependent will guide us as to what medication we give the patient. And I think before prescribing something pharmacological, one needs to start with lifestyle modification. So we advise the patient on how to eat correctly and how to 
um, live a non-sedentary lifestyle, if I could refer to it as that. Then we aim for optimum blood glucose control. Um, and again, using either oral medication and or insulin either on its own uh, individually or together if needed. And then very often we have a metabolic syndrome, which also has patients um, dealing with high blood pressure and hyperlipidemia or a high blood cholesterol that they need to now negotiate. And in as part of the management of diabetes, we will then prescribe um, again, lifestyle modification and then pharmacological treatment of blood pressure and cholesterol levels to be optimized. Um, we do screening for the diabetics. So in terms of foot care, we know that diabetes affects the peripheral nerves. So developing a foot ulcer and because the nerves are not working properly, the patient doesn't feel the ulcer. Then, because the immune system doesn't work properly, that progresses into an infected ulcer and ultimately lands up being a limb amputation, you know. And so we screen for foot ulcers and foot lesions in diabetics. And then the other screening um, is for diabetic retinopathy, where a large percentage of blindness globally is due to diabetes and the complications of that, the blood lipid control, as I alluded to, and kidney disease, because one of the leading causes of renal failure is due to a complication of diabetes. So the conventional approach is managing pharmacologically together with lifestyle and then screening. Now, I'm going to use myself as an example just to pick up on what you've just said. When a person is already with you, you're doing all this screening. But how does a person in the street just think one day, you know what, it's time to go to a doctor and go and test for diabetes. What other symptoms or signs could we possibly experience apart from what you've mentioned in the beginning, fatigue and things like that, that Fatigue these days is something that we suffer from, and I think you can you can tick it off a list of a multitude of diseases. So what would make me say, today is the day that I'm going to the doctor and get my blood sugar tested, you know, for because I'm scared of diabetes? How do we negotiate that? Okay, so I think, yes, um, fatigue is very nonspecific, um, but obviously your other symptoms are a bit more specific. And in the absence of symptoms, we are doing a prevention is better than cure strategy. So if you just look around, many companies um, and you know, even pharmacies will offer a wellness check. And in that wellness check, they do your blood pressure, they do your blood sugar, and they do your blood cholesterol. You actually are incentivized by companies which will give you points if you have those tests done. Mm. So that incentivizes people who are otherwise well to go and check their status of health. Um, and then I think if you suddenly have a cut or a sore um, that is just not healing and you've had it for in excess of perhaps two 
two weeks, you've put on an antiseptic cream and this thing is just getting worse, I would say consider that it could be diabetes. Or if you are ill and you've done your usual and you're not getting better, go to the doctor and get a checkup. But I think that people do need to get at least an annual checkup of basic vital signs, blood pressure, blood, blood cholesterol, and blood sugar or blood glucose, not necessarily fasting, even random levels, and then if need be, take it further. So listeners, what we are saying is even if you really don't suspect anything being wrong, Pop into your local pharmacy that offers a clinic service and have that blood sugar tested, have that heart rate or blood pressure tested and just just get a sense of your of your general wellness. Um, because as Dr. Nitu was saying, prevention is in the end better than cure. Um, Nitu, my next question would be, you've mentioned all the standard treatments, but in your opinion and because of your approach, what would you say are the shortfalls of the standardized approach that most patients are forced to follow? So in my opinion, I think it's largely a one-size-fits-all. We follow a protocol and depending on what we find, we treat. It's not taking into consideration the individual's environment, their work environment, home environment, you know, their genetic makeup and what works for them and individualizing treatment care. That's one of the shortfalls, I think. The second one is because there are large numbers of patients with diabetes that are treated at conventional centers, the time allocated for those patients is really suboptimum. So you see a patient, okay, you've got diabetes, you need a repeat script, quickly do your blood pressure, a checkup, that's really a run through very fast, and then here's your script and there you go. So patients basically also have a misperception that, okay, we're going to the doctor tomorrow. Uh, let me not eat the sweet stuff for a day or two, <laughs> but prior to that, I can do what I like and just take my medication and it will work. So I think it's the education that comes mm. with it. They think they think they take medication that um, combats their bad choices miraculously, and mm -hmm. that's not the case. And then obviously, if one is on chronic medication over a prolonged period of time, the potential adverse effects of those. So I just think if we can do non-pharmacological where possible, or even whilst people have been commenced on pharmacological management, and we now educate them, okay, change your diet, mm -hmm. go on to plant-based for maybe four weeks, let's monitor your glucose levels. Perhaps we can reduce those treatment uh, regimes and with the eventual maybe coming off those medication if you can do. So I'm not saying be reckless. I'm not telling people who have diabetes now, suddenly stop your medication and start doing non-pharmacological management without guidance from somebody. All I'm saying is that with an experienced hand, you can walk this journey and get optimum results. Because ultimately, when you go to a doctor and you're just going through the sausage machine that you described, nobody's actually asking you, so how are you doing on your exercise? How are you doing on your general lifestyle? How, you know, are you getting enough sleep? How are your stress levels? Are you looking at your diet? It's really just maintaining a script. And, and we need a better sort of, 
dialogue with our caregiver in terms of getting the disease not just managed but reduced almost when you can still reverse it. I think that's what, you, what you're saying. Absolutely. But look, we need to also appreciate the deficiency in the number of health workers versus patients that need health care. So there is a shortage of healthcare workers, and maybe that's why doctors work the way they do and run through patients the way they do. Um, however, I personally feel that we should be giving the time that the patient deserves, especially in private health care. Mm. Um, and that's why I've changed my practice style. But it also speaks to what we're doing now in terms of awareness. It puts a little bit of the accountability on the patient as well to say, I'm aware of this now, so let me play my part in it. But now, of course, there's one thing that we're not talking about, and that's we are South Africans. And you keep saying plant-based so where does that leave us with a Saturday braai? I mean, you're not going to swing a nation to, you know, to cut off the, the steak and the, and the ribs on, on, on their braai. What can you tell us about moderation? Okay, so as much as I'm saying plant-based and we're going that route, um, there's a few comments that I'd like to make and plant-based for many reasons, okay? You get your nutrients in the plant-based option versus the animal-based option and it's much more easily metabolized by your body So and it's more bioavailable. So that's the one reason. The other is obviously to optimize the gut biome. A plant-based diet has been shown to do that, Um and now we have companies, because the trend is such, even in South Africa, you have a plant-based puravos or a plant-based sausage that you can put on your braai that is packed with protein and has the essential nutrients. And it's literally a mindset change. So I would say to patients, okay, if you can do plant-based during the week and have your braai on the weekend, then that's great. But I also go further to say, look, if you do have these metabolic disorders and they usually will occur congruently, then we don't want you to really have the red meat high fat content and we're suggesting that you have more the fish and good quality hormone-free antibiotic-free chicken option um, where possible. But if one needs the red meat and prefers that, then yes, on the weekend, it's great for a once-off braai once a week, but not every night and not reheating the braai food because that's where the bad metabolites come Is in. Is that so? Yes. Oh, it shouldn't be reheating braai food. I really didn't know that. Thank you for that little tip on the side. <laughs> My goodness. So, Nita, it's well documented that diabetes is a hereditary condition with irreversible harmful effects on the body. Do you agree with that statement? So, hereditary, yes it is. It does carry a hereditary component and a higher risk if a patient has a family history of diabetes. However, I did allude to epigenetics and I did say that if you yes. make different choices, you can sway your genes to behave in a different way. So as much as it is hereditary, we can change the disease progression with different choices. Irreversible, you know, I used to stand in my GP practice and say to patients, 
diabetes causes irreversible damage and blah, blah, blah. But now we understand that if we change our choices, our bodies have phenomenal healing potential. Mm. And if the damage isn't really advanced, we can reverse that and we can induce healing. So as much as, yes, there is a component of both, I think that they can be changed depending on the choices and the conscious behavior that Mm. we're trying to instill in people. Now, in the past, I think the common perception was diabetes 2 is reversible, diabetes 1 is irreversible. Where do you stand on that? So again, I'm saying um, it just depends on how we manage the disease. And yes, it may be an irreversible problem. So obviously, if your pancreas is not producing insulin and you need to replace that exogenously, then unfortunately, that's the way we're going to have to go. We need to give the body insulin in order for the glucose to be metabolized appropriately. However, if we can do that by diet and lifestyle, and other avenues then and we succeed and the insulin glucose metabolism ratio is corrected and the patient then has normal blood levels well then we've got on to something so absolutely so is the diabetes 2 um, always going to progress to diabetes 1 if you don't in, you know have an intervention in medicine there's never an always So I won't go so far as to say always, um, and I won't even go so far as to say that it progresses in that direction, because that's not what always or often happens. Um, Yes, there's an interlinking, but it just depends on how long the body has had to adapt to the malfunctioning of your insulin glucose metabolism, I would say. Listeners, we can't stress the point enough. If you've got that test done and there's a few warning signs, just get on board with the lifestyle and the food choices because that way it seems that we can we can curb this disease. Now, speaking about that, Nito, I actually ran into a friend who struggles with diabetes and inevitably in the days we live in, our conversation turned to COVID-19. And I mentioned to her that we were actually in the process of preparing for this chat with you. So, of course, she asked me to add this question, diabetes and COVID-19. What are your thoughts on that? So diabetes itself renders a patient or a person who has impaired glucose metabolism or diabetes immunodeficient, meaning that the immune system doesn't function very well. So whether it's COVID or whatever infection it is, you will notice that a diabetic patient will take longer to recover and they are at higher risk for complications from whichever illness it is that they are being affected with. Um, Often diabetic patients are also obese and in the current COVID pandemic, we are aware that obesity is a risk for complications Um, as well as for maybe non-recovery even in extreme circumstances. So I would say, yes, patients with diabetes, especially those with poorly controlled and undiagnosed diabetes, are at higher risk of, one, developing COVID, and two, even succumbing to the disease. 
Um, whereas patients who are well-managed and well-controlled on medication and lifestyle transformation processes, um, they're basically not as high risk as somebody not being well-controlled. So the long and the short is get yourself tested, know whether you have diabetes or not, and manage it accordingly. And then we boost the immune system accordingly. You mentioned the gut microbiome earlier in our chat. So what is the effect, if any, of optimizing the gut microbiome on diabetes? Just as a last question for today. Okay, so several studies have reported that gut microbiome dysbiosis is a factor in rapid progression of insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. And this accounts for about 90% of all diabetes globally. So what we're saying is people who have an imbalance in the good bacteria versus bad bacteria in the gut are more likely to have adverse effects of insulin resistance and then developing diabetes type 2. The gut microbiome dysbiosis basically also assists and may reshape intestinal barrier functions and host metabolic and signaling pathways, which are directly or indirectly related to the insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. So these microbes or these bacteria form metabolites. And the metabolites formed from these bacterial um, activity basically interact with the epithelial, hepatic, and cardiac cell receptors that modulate host physiology. So xenobiotics, including dietary components, antibiotics, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, um, which are used for your aches and pains, strongly affect the gut microbial composition and can promote dysbiosis, which is basically interrupting the gut biome again. And any change in the gut microbiota can shift the host metabolism towards an increased energy harvest during diabetes and obesity. So the exact mechanisms of how this impacts um, diabetes, you know, the gut microbes and how the host metabolism at the molecular level is impacting diabetes is not yet known. However, we do know that certain gut microbiota directly and indirectly facilitate vital functions of the human host, including digestion of complex dietary foods, harvesting energy from indigestible carbohydrates, vitamin synthesis, and development of immune cells, and thus enhancing immune system function. So to get your gut microbiome right improves your immune system function. Then we know that certain microbiomes also will lower your LDL cholesterol levels. So ah. then you're improving your blood cholesterol uh, or hyperlipidemic profile as mm -hmm. well. And then you find that reduction in gut microbiome diversity leads to an increase in pathogenic bacteria. That means disease-forming mm. bacteria, gut inflammation, and then the progression of a diabetic condition. So the inflammatory response that happens in the gut causes toxins to be deposited into the small um, blood vessels and can be remarkably reversed by taking the specific pre and probiotics that act in that area. 
So we also know that diabetes causes patients to get infections because they are immune compromised. And then because the patients are getting infections, how do we manage it? Of course, the patient gets an antibiotic. We give the antibiotic, the gut microbiome is disrupted. And very often the patient is not prescribed a pro and prebiotic with that to restore the gut biome. So then you're getting the leaky gut syndrome again, and it's all caused why? Because we're giving them the antibiotic, we as doctors, unfortunately. Mm. So, you know, in summary, in terms of gut biome and diabetes, I would say eating fermented foods restores the gut biome. Um, taking a probiotic and a prebiotic supplement, obviously in good proportions and the ones that are bioavailable will restore the gut biome. And restoring the gut biome will basically help alleviate the chronic inflammatory process that the diabetes is causing, help normalize the blood glucose levels and decrease gut inflammation, and then also help you with the hyperlipidemic problem that comes together with the diabetes most often. I think what you've just described is the the age-old problem where you start with, you know, it's like packing your cupboard. You just wanted to get one thing out of that that shelf and you realized you have to pack that shelf and then before you know it, you've spent a day fixing your cupboard up. And that's pretty much how this whole system works together. It you, you you start fixing one thing and, and it's got a knock-on effect. And if you don't look at it from afar, as you mentioned, integratively, you run into trouble. So thank you so much for coming to chat to us today about diabetes. I think we've learned a lot in a in an absorbable fashion and we're looking forward to having you back sometime soon. Thanks, T, and thanks to the Chat Sapphire listeners. And I hope to be back soon. And also, I think in future, we can do the hows on whatever I've mentioned. So, you know, something even as simple as exercise, Mm. to go on and say to a patient, just exercise. What is that? We need to, as doctors, prescribe the exercise as you would prescribe a medication. So many milligrams, so many hours apart, so many times a week. We want you to do moderate to high intensity exercise for 30 to 45 minutes, five times a week. That's how we need to speak to the people. So I think everything that I've touched on is potentially a topic on its own. And I would really be happy to come back and share my knowledge with the Chat Sapphire listeners as well as yourself going forward. So I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, T. That'll be fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Neetu.